1: Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions—that's Wonder made possible.
0: Learn more at evernorth.com/slash Wonder.
2: This is the Roy Green Show podcast.
0: We have uh, often on this program spoken about the issue of impaired driving, and we've often had family members of people who have been injured or have been killed by an impaired driving incident, and. I've never had the opportunity to sit with someone who has, in fact, been convicted of driving impaired and taking someone's life because of that. And in studio with me is uh, David. We're just going to go with, uh, with with his first name. And you're here to talk to us. Hi, David. Thank you for coming in.
3: I thank I thank you for having me.
0: You're here because tell us why why you why this is important to you.
3: Well, I wanted to come in. I was given the opportunity, um, and it was something I didn't want to pass up uh, to get the message out um, as to my side of the story, as to what happens when you choose to drink and drive.
0: Okay. Uh, Doug Morton is here as well. Uh, earlier, Doug was on the program because he represented me in a, in a minor case now. And um, But, Doug, do you want to talk about uh, working with David? Do you want to talk about what happened on that day, or should we? is it better for David to do that? What's What works better?
4: Probably better if David tells his story. Okay. And if there's any questions,
0: you can ask me to clarify. Okay. Let's take you to that day in November
3: 2016. Uh, that morning was like any other day. Um, I'd gotten up, done some housework. Um, it was my uh, baby shower uh, for my wife that day. Um, she was seven months pregnant. Uh, so ran some errands, and I decided I was going to go down and pick up a fish. I keep uh, a couple fish tanks um, and decided to... Uh, basically have a drink in the afternoon which is something that I didn't normally do and debated whether to go over it to help pick up some of the presents from the baby shower or to head down to Brampton to um, pick up the fish and I made the choice to head down there um, after having a drink and basically was driving along um, uh, Highway 10 which is here in Ontario and uh, after that I don't remember what happened It ended up in the ditch um, th- that's basically What happened in a nutshell that day. Um, Were you out cold um, from the accident? Were you unconscious? I was unconscious. Uh, I wasn't sure for how long, whether it was 30 seconds or a minute. Um, But when I did come to, I realized there had been an accident um, and didn't immediately realize the severity of it um, until I actually uh, crawled out of the ditch.
0: So what did they tell you? What what did they tell you happened?
3: They basically told me um, that someone had passed away. Um, and as soon as I heard that uh, I mean it's it's shock Um, I felt sick immediately because it it takes a while for your brain to process what they've actually told you Um, and that's uh, that's what they told me and I I went into shock I I didn't know what to think Um, it was like a dream. How are you now? Oh it's been about a year and a half Um, the first couple weeks was more of a shock type period um, where you're just in uh, living in fear of what you've done. Um, you're not sure of the consequences. I, I felt, I felt horrible because you have no way of, of talking to the family or, or telling them how you feel. Um, and as time went by, I, I've learned to, uh, kind of, um, basically take things day by day. I've got to keep my head up uh, for my daughter, for my wife, for my family. I, I can't lock myself away in a room. Um, and I want to use basically every bit of positivity that I come across as basically to help, help it where I can.
0: How do you you explain what happened to your family?
3: It was a horrible, horrible choice. Um, I've had to explain to them uh, many, many times to friends and most of them know that this is not something that they would ever imagine that I would have done. Um, it was something that I never thought would have happened to myself either because it wasn't wasn't something I made a habit of. Um, it, it can happen to anyone and it, and it can basically happen so quickly. Um, it's not something that I, like I said, I would have ever thought um, would have been a situation that I was in or would have ever, you know, wanted to. So,
0: so you would have been in, in the mindset that uh, I haven't had that much to drink, I, I'm okay, I'll be all right to drive. Would that be how you might have felt?
3: Uh, that was the mindset of that day, because um, after I had, I, I did some, uh, some housework around the house, um, and I, I didn't feel that I, that I had, but, I obviously had. Um, I think most people make that assumption, and you can't. I mean, if you've had anything, it's it's not worth it at all.
0: How were things uh, developing legally at that point? What was the interaction with the police and the crown and? And and as far as dealing with uh, with the with the justice system is concerned, at
3: that point or
0: yeah. or now, no. Then, uh, like like what happened initially, you you were you were taken
3: to court, you were charged, or right? I was taken to court um, uh, the next day on Sunday, and um, I was released on bail. Um, and we were basically waiting for the uh, the court date, which started about a year later, um, which was last November.
0: What is life like when they let you go on bail, they, uh, they, they free you on bail? Yeah. What were the conditions like?
3: What what sorts of conditions were imposed on you? Uh, the conditions were not to consume alcohol, which wasn't an issue. Um, I couldn't drive, couldn't have keys in my hand. Um, basically, had to abide by the rules of the house uh, set forth by my two assurities, my father-in-law, my father and my wife, and... Um, so the last year, I've spent uh, going to work, uh, spending as much time as I can with my daughter, who's now 16 months, um, and uh, basically trying to make the best of a, uh, of a horrible situation.
0: The stress on the family during that time period, from the time that you're, you go to court, you're given your bail conditions, you go back to the, to the home, you're living in the home, yep. with your daughter, with, with your wife, you've got your family around you, The the
3: stress on the family dynamic has to be significant. Uh, Huge, yes. I mean, it affected every aspect um, of our lives. Um, I mean, I felt felt horrible for having to put them through it um, and the worry and the stress involved with what had happened, the incident itself, and what was going to happen. Um, It's a horrible feeling to have to know that you've done that to... Uh, people that you love. Um, I mean, combined with the fact that if somebody had died, it's it's a pretty bad situation. And yeah. there's my daughter, who, like I said, was born uh, three months after, and it kind of overshadows that because that's always in the back of your head. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't I don't wake up and I'm not goes by I don't think about it. So you're going to prison, correct? And the date that happens. Uh, the date that th- that happens is May the thirty-first. Okay. Yeah. Let me take a
0: break. We'll come back and we'll talk about uh, what's ahead for you. And you did have the opportunity to speak to family members of the. Was it a man, or a gentleman who was who was
3: killed? I was a gentleman. Okay. Um, I have not yet. Uh, that will be uh, this coming um, this coming Friday the eleventh, if the judge gives me the opportunity to do so. Okay. But so. You, but you've seen them? Yes, I have. Yes.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900-CHML. We're
0: back with uh, David, who is going to be going to prison um, next Friday, is is the date. And this is after his driving. Um, what's the term? His conviction.
4: He's, yeah, he he well, pled guilty last uh, impaired Friday. Driving. Yes, right, right, impaired, impaired driving.
0: Yes, for impaired driving. Okay, now... Before before I ask you, Doug, about what happened in in, in court, you were charged with uh, impaired driving causing death, excess blood alcohol involving death, and dangerous operation causing death. Um, you also heard victims' impact statements.
3: In, uh, yes, in I court. did this uh, this past Friday. Okay,
0: we'll get to that in a moment. But Doug, walk us through what happened in court, and what 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 can you add to this this narrative today? What I can add, Roy, is right from the beginning, the uh, family of the
4: victim, he had eight brothers and sisters. He had a wife and some children, aunts and uh, nephews and and nieces. They had been to every court appearance. And during the eight days of trial, they were there. They were family from Newfoundland. They were family from Fort McMurray. There are a couple of court appearances that were administrative, and there's always some family representation. Last Friday, the entire family was there. Uh, during the David's guilty plea, he pled guilty to the count of impaired driving causing death. And the other two charges were judicially stayed, which, in effect, they were withdrawn, not proceeded with. Um, the family have been very reasonable to deal with. Um so uh, they're, they're going through the events uh, and having to relieve the, relive this just as much as we are. Uh, the family also understood that there were some tribal issues here. One of the reasons that we asked David when he was released on bail to go into seclusion were there were some identity issues. We didn't want him talking about this outside his family dynamic in case somebody wanted to tip the police off or the crown off to uh, something that they hadn't covered. Um, but as the trial progressed, there were some court rulings from the Supreme Court of Canada and the Court of mm-hmm. Appeal that uh, put an end to the arguments we were going to bring. And at that point, that's we had a meeting with David, and David instructed Mr. Caroline, Michael Caroline is his lawyer, instructed him to uh, speak with the Crown about, resolve, about ending the trial, mid-trial, and pleading guilty. Okay. And that's what we
0: did. Now, the reason we're just going with your first name is... <coughs> Just preferable and out of respect to the family of the,
4: uh, yes, the gentleman the, the who, died. Family who
0: passed away. Yes. Um f- your, can we can we can talk about how long your prison sentences? Yeah, yeah. So you, it was a it was a plea bargain? Well, I don't want to say plea bargain. Uh, it was negotiated. Um, it was negotiated,
4: but when when Mr. Caroline spoke to the crown attorney about trying to resolve this, they went before a different judge. Mhm. Who listened to everything that the crown and Mr. Caroline had to say, and the judge said, "And these set of circumstances, he thinks a sentence in the four to four and a half year range
0: is re- is is acceptable." Okay. Now you know that people across Canada, hearing that, will recoil at four four and a half years, and we've heard it. We've talked about it many times on the program. Someone drinks; nobody forced you to drink. You cause an accident. Um, someone loses his life. The case that's been made many times is why shouldn't that be a second-degree murder charge? Now, it's not something you can answer because it's court precedent, and that's the way the system works. There have been uh, the courts have decided that this is the um, average length for uh, for a uh, for an impaired driving death situation for three to four to five years, and uh, and they are quite often negotiated, but. What do you say to people who are listening to the program now, who are saying, "How come that guy gets off so easily?" You you want to you want to live your life differently. You want to get the message out, not to do what you did. But there are people who are thinking not so positively about you right now, David.
3: No, um, I think it has to be taken on a on a case by case basis. Um, I don't want anybody to pity me because it's not something that that I'm looking for that way I mean what I at the choice I made was the choice I made and I have to deal with the consequences um, I guess in terms of the court has to base it on what they feel to be um, a fair decision whether they they feel the person has remorse for what they've done um, if they have a past record um, I had to basically leave it in the courts hands and what they've what they've handed off to me the uh, the four and a half year sentence um, a nine-year driving ban is is what I felt was fair as well, um, and that was what uh, they had recommended.
0: You've never had a a driving, ex- uh, drunk driving or, or impaired driving charge previously. I uh, never, no criminal record, no. When you heard the victims' impact statements, what did that do to you?
3: It's hard to hear. Um, I sat there with uh, with my wife this past Friday. Um, you wish you could say something to them personally. I know that I can't yet. I'll get that chance, hopefully, this coming Friday, too. Um, you wish you could say something that would make it all better, but you can't. And that's that's the worst part of it, um, is I would love them to know me as a person. Um, I know that's not going to help or change the fact, um, if it gives them any closure or, or if it helps them at all, that's basically what I'm looking for. Um, because it wasn't fair to them. So. So you had
0: you do you make the plea deal? It's four and a half years in prison. You you won't do the four and a half years, uh, more than likely. But how do you feel as you're preparing to go to prison? How does that? How's that? How's that impacting on you?
3: Uh, the first reaction was fear, um, and panic, obviously, because you know, um, you know what you're headed for. Um, I. And part of that is fear of the unknown. I mean, I've never been to prison. I had, I have no idea what to expect. Um, and then, as time went by, um, you have to keep your head up. Um, you're going in there, and I'm, I'm going to make the best of that time. And if there's anything I can do on the inside to help other people out, um, whatever I can do, I'll, I'll do it to make basically the best of a bad situation, and then carry that forth once I'm, once I'm released. Um, this is something that obviously. That I've done to myself, um, and I need to make the absolute best of a negative situation, um, and take any positives I can out of it.
0: You have some uh, incredibly supportive family uh, members, huh?
3: Uh, very much so. They've been, um, uh, they've been great. Yeah. Thought about what you're going to tell your daughter? Uh, when she's old enough, um, I. I plan on telling her uh, at this point because she's so young. I want to keep as much of that away from her as possible, um, and and keep um, things as consistent as possible for her benefit. That's so that she feels secure. Um, my family supporting us in that way. But uh, when she's older, I'll tell her exactly what had happened, and um, I, and hopefully that makes an impact on her um, once she knows um, what I did and uh, what I went through. You know, she's uh, she's too young now to. I hope not to remember, but um, I definitely will tell her when she's old enough to understand it. Yes.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I think it's very courageous of you to come in here and 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 talk about about yourself and what you've done, and uh, and and do what nobody else has done. I've many times asked for someone who has been convicted of impaired driving and who's taken a life to call in, so we can actually talk to that person and find out what they're feeling, who they are. What happened to them? Because time and again it's been said, there but for the grace of God go I. Well, I, I, I don't buy into that because we all have decisions to make in life, right? You decide you made the wrong decision. It cost someone their life. But you could also just do your time quietly, just stay in the shadows, and then carry on with your life. But you've made a decision and a determination that you're going to do something when you get out of prison to you can't make up for what once happened no but but you want to do things positive things when you get out of prison so we're going to talk about that and we'll talk more about uh, about david's situation maybe D- doug has some more uh, issues to raise as far as the the legal realities are concerned but and i know that it upsets people in in this country that the prison sentences for someone who drives impaired and uh, and and goes or receives a prison sentence of four years maybe does a year and a half or two years it upsets people, but that is not David's fault. That's the justice system that's been developed, and it all acts, uh, goes forward on, on precedent.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.
0: How have you dealt with the—well, let me let me rephrase this. What do you not want to leave this studio without saying? What needs to be said? What do you want to say?
3: I just want people to know that it can happen to anybody and it can happen very, very quickly. Um, and it's not something you go into thinking is going to happen. Um, and I want to make sure that people know that I made that choice and I will own up to that. Um, and I have, but if there's, thing I can leave people with is that it's you've, You've got to make the best of a bad situation. And when I was given this opportunity by you to come on and speak about this, I I thought a couple of times back and forth, and I said, I, sh- I should take this opportunity because it's, it's something that I've wanted to do, and many people don't get this outlet to, to actually speak and uh, give their side of it. Um,
0: There's very few people who would actually do what you're doing.
3: Well, I thought that too, but I couldn't pass up uh, this situation just to... Um, give people the other side and not for them to feel sorry for me but just to give them the other side that it's um it's a horrible situation it affects uh, it affects both sides and it's it's something that I want to um try to change if I can if it's one person uh, that picks up on something from this conversation then that makes it worth it for me have you thought that perhaps family members of
0: the man whose life you took uh might be listening to this
3: broadcast. Yes. Yeah, I have, and I. I hope they've they've heard uh, what I've had to say, um, and if it helps at all, then that's a positive thing. Doug.
4: On um, Friday, Mr. Caroline informed the judge. This and is David's lawyer. And David's lawyer, yes. Informed the judge that David would be on your show today, and the judge and the crown attorney. The judge's jaw dropped. He said, he's never heard of this happen before. But we have to start thinking like this as a society. Like this is all part of the sentence that David started serving when the officer gave him the news that the man had passed away and he was now charged in impaired driving causing death. We as a society are shifting in, in how we deal with these things and reconciliation and what David's going to say to the family uh, this coming Friday are, are all part of this and this is this is an opportunity uh, for him to do that and for other people to start to think about owning up and uh, to to what they've done and, and and taking ownership David David has not uttered one word in the entire time I've known him
0: about denial about blaming somebody else. No, and I've had conversations with David yeah. off the air. Yeah. And it's been like like now. I, I want to make a difference. I want to make uh, get out there and 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 pay for what I've done. Yep. And and bring forward the message to not do what I did. Well, how would you plan on doing that? Have you had any thoughts about what you will want to do? What you'll actually physically want to do when you get out of prison?
3: I want to become a contributing member again. Um, I mean, you're there. You're there for a set period of time, um, and like I said to you earlier, if there's anything I'm, I'm given the opportunity to do there, I will do. Um, and once I'm out, I mean, I, like I said, I've spoke to family and friends, and and told them my story, and I hope that's that's helped them or given them uh, like a second thought um, to uh, reconsider doing what I did. Um, Has it cost you any friends? Oh, for sure, um, but I mean, we've kept a pretty uh, Tight knit group of people that have been there to support me. Um, so, yes, it has, but that comes with uh, this type of incident. So,
0: mm-hmm. so next Friday you go to prison. Uh,
3: the 31st. thirty first. Thirty first. Thirty first.
0: to prison. Um, what advice are you giving, uh, giving, David Doug? You're the ex police officer. What 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 advice are you giving him? Well, honestly, Roy hadn't
4: hadn't had to give him any. He's got a tremendous support group in his family, and David's taken ownership of this right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, he's done what we've asked him to, and and that's why when some people will say, "Why isn't he talking earlier?" Well, we told him not to. I I don't have anything to say to him. He's this he's like I said, stand-up guy. He's uh, taken it on the chin, and he's going to uh, have his say this coming Friday. And Tell the judge and the family his uh, side of the story.
0: Well, you know, I told you off the air that I've received a few emails, not many, but a few emails saying, why are you talking to this guy? And I hope that people who ask that question have an answer now. First of all, I think I had a responsibility to put David on the air because he wants to do something nobody else has done before. No one who's been found guilty of impaired driving and caused, uh, taking a life. And secondly, it gives us an opportunity to hear someone who is truly remorseful. And I really believe you are. From our conversations that we've had off the air, what I see you, see of you here, I'm pretty good at uh, discerning body language and, and, and hearing what people are saying and how what they mean when they're saying it. That comes with a lot of experience with interviews. And I, I really believe that you honestly intend to make a difference and I hope you do. And I hope uh, I hope you're able to explain all of this to to your daughter and keep your family unit tight. And uh, you have to pay for this. And one way or another, you're going to be paying for it for the rest of your life.
3: Yes. No question.
0: David, thank you for coming in.
3: Uh, thank you for having me here. I, I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe we can talk again as uh, you know, as the days, as the, as the year, a year and a half, two years goes forward, or when you come out of prison, probably we can uh,
3: have you back in. I'd be up for that for sure. Okay, if that's something you'd like to do. Yeah, yeah,
0: Mr. Morton, good to see you again. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for what you did for me. No, you're, you're welcome. Okay.
2: You're listening to the Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from two to five on 900 CHML.
0: Dan McTague joins us on the Roy Green Show, senior petroleum analyst with GasBuddy.com. We talk to Dan regularly about gasoline prices. So yesterday, Dan, we spoke with Frank McKenna, the deputy Hi. chair of TD Bank, and. Uh, we're talking about the $117 billion we lost over a seven-year period selling our oil to the Americans at that deeply discounted price because we can't sell it anywhere else.
1: Well, that's right, and that's a great tragedy here, Roy. Uh, we are selling uh, at deeply discounted prices. Uh, right now, about $19 a barrel, but generally over the years, since at least uh, the end of 2017, you're looking at an average of about $26, $27 uh, a barrel. If we s- multiply that by 2 3000000 million, you can get a pretty good idea of a, what, what a $50, $60 million a day loss looks like. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, you know, to point out that uh, both Mexico, uh, even Saudi Arabia, uh, Iraq, Iraq are all able to sell heavy oil back to the United States or heavy oil and get at least $60 a barrel for theirs. So it's a real tragedy, and there's only one reason. We're, we're really stuck when it comes to yeah.
0: And Mr. McKenna pointed out that we are now importing five or 700, 700... Yeah. 700 um, what is it? Million, million barrels. Seven. Well, six hundred fifty thousand. So seven hundred. Seven hundred thousand barrels a day for the eastern Canadian refineries in two thousand and fifteen was six hundred fifty thousand. Look, Anza, tell me this, please. What is this? What's the price variance? We broadcast from Ontario through to British Columbia. What's the price variance as you travel east to west or west to east?
1: Well, at the pumps with uh, with taxes, there are major differences. But if you're looking at maritimes, a dollar thirty. Dollar uh, thirty one. They have no carbon tax. Montreal dollar forty seven point nine. That can drop, of course, during the week uh, during the weekends. Ontario dollar thirty six, dollar thirty Of course, there are you know variations in terms of retail margins. Uh, if you're looking at uh, Manitoba, you're in the one twenty six range. Uh, if you're looking at one twenty seven range, uh, Saskatchewan about the same, but dollar twenty two. Uh, Alberta dollar thirty four, especially in Calgary. Uh, the rest of BC about a dollar forty five, forty four, but Vancouver a dollar fifty nine point nine, and Victoria not far behind, uh, at about a dollar fifty three, a dollar fifty two point nine. So variations across the country, but uh, we use a lot of gasoline. And since 2015, you know, you and I talked last week about the 650,000 barrels, wide 700,000 barrels demand continues to rise in Canada. Let's not kid ourselves. Uh, we are driving further uh, we are a prosperous economy and uh, Canadians are in fact taking
0: advantage of it Dan if we were selling our oil internationally selling it to countries like India and China and we were getting top international price a dollar per barrel uh what would that I, i'm not i'm not sure whether that would affect the price of the pump directly maybe it would. In, in it would
1: it would absolutely okay go absolutely.
0: ahead explain please
1: well, where we were a petrodollar until 2016. And this is, of course, some people like to deny this, but the reality is that if you get full world price for your oil, so let's say it moves up $15, 20 $25 a barrel uh, with the ability to sell to international markets, that would have a direct uh, correlation to the value of the Canadian dollar. We price all of our gasoline, all of our commodities in U.S. terms. A stronger Canadian dollar leads to, uh, you know... Uh, less at the pumps. Put another way, if the Canadian dollar were trading at par today with the U.S. As, as, with U.S. greenback, as it did when we had $100 oil back, you know, four or five years ago, you'd be paying 15 cents a liter less than you're paying today.
0: That's assuming the politicians don't find a way to add that to their tax burden on us.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, or tax on taxes, but yes, no, there's... Uh, but it, it should reflect. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, but it's true. I mean, there has been a, a, a evidence of that in the past, where uh, you know, prices go up, um, perhaps uh, not high enough for some. Uh, and there's a very large, you know, determined minority of disinfo- uh, disinformation out there that is uh, suggesting that. And we see this on on emails and Twitter. Well, we'd love to have the price at two two and a half dollars a year. That'll get people to drive electric cars. Well, that's all fine and dandy, except no one has 120,000 bucks to buy one of those. Uh, no one can afford the subsidies, uh, unless of course uh, you happen to be in certain provinces where these things are made available. And of course. Look at the hydro rates in Ontario and the conversion rates. Uh, These are just examples of where and how Atlantis such claims can be.
0: Mm -hmm. In about 20 seconds, do you have any idea why Premier Horgan would be talking to the governor of Washington? Because that's where they have a huge refinery.
1: Well, let's be honest. He's borrowing 900,000 barrels uh, a month from uh, the United States. He's importing into Vancouver because we are importing an average of about 35,000 barrels of gasoline a day. Uh, gasoline and other fuels. Uh, So he needs to talk to them, but good luck with that because they're importing gasoline as well. There's a big problem in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, you're not going to get someone to put out $16 billion to build a refinery Mm. when you can't even get a pipeline through.
0: Let us use what we have. Let's use our natural resources to our benefit because it doesn't improve with age if it's left in the ground. Mr. McTagg, no, it's it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Dan. My pleasure. Thanks, thanks, Roy.
2: You're listening to the Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from two to five on 900 CHML.
0: So the story is Alberta leads provinces in economic growth in this new StatsCan GDP report. It's been talked about a lot. We've talked about it. I've tweeted about it, and it's always uh, well. I, I want to say it's a pleasure, but it's it's always an education for me to be able to go. To catherine swift and get her thoughts and her ex- benefits of her experience as not only an economist but the past president and ceo of the canadian federation of independent business now working canadians.ca is where catherine is and of course beauties and the beast on uh, on saturday afternoons on this program so catherine you've seen the story you know that it's making the rounds you know that that the 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 the, the, the uh, environment minister tweeted out something that i still don't understand it's a uh, just a sentence that, that doesn't have any reason to it. But what do you? How do you interpret this this story and the claims that Alberta leads the provinces in economic growth as far as the GDP is concerned?
5: Roy, well, I, I don't know that we've really got much to say because your uh, your uh, listener there, Karen, nailed it. <laughs> uh, the The reality is the Alberta economy. Has been, it is, and has been very reliant on energy prices for quite some time. Nothing new there. And when energy prices tanked uh, in uh, in late 2014, 2015, the the Alberta economy and the Canadian economy, to some extent too, went with it. And when it's it's really a question. In my long experience, I've I've always found it so. uh, I don't know. It's just sort of hilarious in a in a sick kind of way that. Governments always, and all governments, no, not any one particular party, they always claim responsibility when the economy's growing, and they always, of course, when the economy's not growing, uh, refer to, oh, it's global forces or it's whatever. The reality is, is global forces, probably for about 80% of any economy, given our inter- interdependence. And these recent Alberta numbers... What they're showing is simply that the Alberta economy has been in the tank uh, for the better part of three years now. Oil prices have begun to recover; hence, so has the Alberta economy. And the simple arithmetic is such that when you've had they've had two years of recession basically in the Alberta economy, so when things start to improve, uh, suddenly that year-over-year number, because you're comparing it to something that was abysmal. Looks very good. If you had an economy that was growing uh, year after year by say two and a half to three percent, if you saw four point nine on top of growth, that would be that would be quite you know quite something to applaud. But in this case, you're comparing it to years that were negative. So I'd be shocked if you didn't have a big number. And, and you're, again, your your listener Karen, Karen there hit it uh, right on the head because when you look at absolute things like employment. Uh, They can see rates, overall GDP in the province. It's lower than it was back in 2014, so it has not recovered.
0: And, you know, uh, Catherine, when I look at the graph that's part of the Bloomberg story, and it shows all industries and then services-producing industries, the energy sector and all other goods. So you look at that graph, 2013 and 2014, Alberta's numbers, and then if you take out 2015 and 2016, if you just remove them, and those were the years that were just terrible. And then you look at two thousand and seventeen, which is the recovery year, two thousand and seventeen doesn't even match up to either two thousand thirteen or two thousand and fourteen.
5: Exactly. It's still lower. The, acti- the overall economic activity level is still lower than it was for you know four to five years ago. So yeah, that, that's really the more you know comparable number to use. Um, The other thing to keep in mind, of course, is that the Alberta government has spent like mad and run up massive debt in the process. So you are always going mean, to, I always refer to it as maxing out your credit card. When you max your credit card out, you do live quite well for a little while, but then the boom falls and you face massive debt. And, and that's what, so even, even some of the growth that they've seen in 2017 was very, uh, you know, sort of very short-sightedly driven by government debt. So... <laughs> Uh, anyone who actually fools themselves into thinking that the Alberta economy is in good shape is dreaming in technicolor.
0: When you and I talked earlier today off the air, you you'd also listened to Frank McKenna yesterday. Yes, I did, yeah. And you you took particular note of something that he said about foreign investment.
5: Yeah, well what I thought, I like Frank and and I've always had a lot of time for Frank. I remember meeting with him when he was New Brunswick premier back in the day, and he's always been a pragmatic you know, sensible guy with a, a good business head on his shoulders and understands what an economy really, you know, how an economy really operates. But what did strike me when I was listening to that interview was that a lot of people are saying about the Trans Mountain, you know, pipeline, oh, it's its only one project. Mind you, it's a huge project. But it's only one project. But, you know, what he said was very much what I buy into as well, which is, that one project sends a signal around the world that Canada can't get things done, and it doesn't just affect. You know that the, the, if, if the if the pipeline doesn't go through, and boy, the clock's really ticking on that. Eh? I mean, at the end of the three clock, and a half weeks, something's going to happen.
0: Yeah, yeah. So when when you look at this, the the whole argument, the, the arguments that have been going back and forth and they'd be getting occasionally strident and then a little more tamped down and then strident again and then a lot of questions. What does that do to the internal sense of confidence in Canada? What does that do to the confidence of the small and medium-sized business operators who are really the job creators? in this country, as you and I spoke of many times when you were at the CFIB.
5: Yeah, of course it does nothing good. And mind you, businesses are feeling it firsthand. We've heard from the head of the Royal Bank, we or a senior executive at the Royal Bank, we've heard from a number of business people already that are kind of trying to, you know, be the canaries in the coal mine that we see investment, you know, flooding south. At the same time as we have these bad, bad anti-business policies in Canada, the U.S. has got a bunch of pro-business policies. So there, you know, it couldn't be worse timing in a way in the sense that the U.S. is, is you know, is sharply reducing taxes, reducing regulatory burdens and so on. So that's really, you know, this is the worst possible time to have these bad anti-business policies. And a lot of people say anti-business, oh, who cares? But, you know, if you have anti-business policies, what you have is anti-prosperity policies. Because the only entities that create any uh, real wealth and prosperity in any economy is business, and then the people they employ, who all pay lots of taxes to keep our big fat governments, you know, in business. So it's a big, big worry right now. and confidence. Well, I still, I mean, I'm not at CFIP as you know anymore, but I still pay attention to a lot of the research they do. It's very good kind of grassroots stuff, and you can see the confidence levels of small, medium-sized businesses in Canada dropping over the last little while, and this is one reason it's happening.
0: You know, and I've heard people say, well, just because it's dropping doesn't mean they're they're going to move, they're going to close down. Absolutely. It's not necessarily mean that at all, but it does suggest That they're going to be much, much less reluctant to expand or to create more jobs or to put money where they're not sure it's going to be wisely responded to by government.
5: Well, of course. And, and one thing that I, I remember, I can remember debating people on the left many a time, and they'd say, well, so-and-so that owns that business, he or she, they live here. It's not like they're going to uproot, you know, their families here, and so on. But you know what I heard so, so very often from business owners is, that's true. I'm not going to move. I'm going to stay in, you know, whatever part of Canada I'm in. But you can bet any new businesses I start will not be in this country. Any expansion, like you say, Roy, will be elsewhere. So if, if you really think that those business – and, of course, some do go under, too, let's face it. So, some do go right off, you know, right. right out of the business community. But, yeah, the, the the thing that is hard to measure is how much of that – uh, you know how much of that potential growth are we not getting because we're not treating our business community very fairly,
0: so given that we now know, according to the TD results, the study, one hundred and seventeen billion dollars was lost to the Canadian economy by selling our oil at that huge discount to the United States because we have no other customers. this is ridiculous. but given the fact that we know that uh, what is what is this doing now to? to um opening new starting new business ventures in Canada it is it, we're we're beyond it being hypothetical now i would think we're we're probably at the point where people who are investing and creating new business am i am i on on, on track if i say i suspect many of them are creating the businesses outside this country
5: no they, they absolutely are and i know i i personally know of quite a few who are doing exactly that so, no, you're, you're not off base at all. And there's two things that are happening here. Foreign investors aren't investing in Canada. So there's you know, money that's not coming in from outside of the country. And Canadian investors are putting their money elsewhere. So you've got both of those impacts. And that number you cited about, that was just the oil-related stuff. That's right. I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tip of the iceberg.
0: That's right, it is, you're right. That's just the oil. Okay, so what's the one thing that Canadians have to ask themselves? If we know that the political leaders are loggerheads or they just they're just stuck up there they're up to their knees in, 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 in mud, don't seem to be able to move forward, what is that the Canadian voter, the Canadian citizen taxpayer has to ask him or herself?
5: Well, I think they have to uh, – the ultimate answer is to get governments that are not behaving in these destructive ways and they're worried about sort of frippery and you know we had a budget a federal budget recently that was supposedly gender based i mean come on <laughs> this kind of window dressing is not what we need from any government we need substantive reasonable fair policies that'll boost our economy keep people employed lower lower taxes because once again we know about 43 44% of our money Goes, goes right to governments. And when I see a government say, oh, Rachel Notley in Alberta recently was going, oh, we're so worried. We want you to be able to afford child care. Well, you know what, Rachel? You've taxed everybody so heavily, they can't afford childcare, among other things. So, you know, I, I guess my message to everybody was, would, it would be, boy, when the next election, whatever it may be, provincial, federal, municipal comes around, look at the policies being promoted and, uh, you know, judge accordingly if they're sensible for a healthy economy, a healthy job climate, and a decent standard of living for everybody.
0: Catherine, thank you for the time today. Much appreciated.
2: My pleasure as always, Roy.
0: Catherine Swift, workingcanadians.ca is where you'll find Catherine, workingcanadians.ca.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900-CHML.
0: I've been thinking about Bernice Thomas uh, quite a bit recently, and, particularly because I, I knew that Bernice was quite seriously ill. But I knew also that she was one of the most determined people I have ever had the the privilege of speaking with. i never had the, the privilege of meeting her. But we talked on the phone, off the air and on the air, on an, quite a few occasions. And she was so determined to hold the federal government of this country responsible or accountable, not responsible, but accountable, in the death of her brother and... Uh, Mr. John Ridsdale, who was also with uh, Mr. Hall, Robert Hall, Benice's brother, and she felt very strongly that Ottawa had done not nearly enough to properly represent her brother, or done what they everything they might have been able to do to help rescue her brother from the Philippines or the terrorists in the Philippines, and just a matter of weeks ago. And I can only guess at how ill she was at the time. Um, Benice made her way to Ottawa to meet with Justin Trudeau. Initially, they, they weren't going to make the prime minister available because they said he was too busy, but she, uh, she was determined she was going to meet Trudeau, and she did. She also had the opportunity to meet Christian Freeland, the um, foreign affairs minister or global affairs minister, who had been just as determined to be silent when Benice contacted. Her, but uh, she got to see uh, Christopher Freeland, and she also met with our CMP officers. Now, when we had the uh, opportunity to speak with Bernice, also with her on most of the conversations was her cousin Gord Bibby, and Gord joins me now from British Columbia, where they where they all lived. Uh, Gord, my, and I'm sure I can speak on behalf of everyone listening to this program sincere condolences to your family to you on on the loss of your of your cousin your family member just a remarkable remarkable woman Bonice Thomas
6: well f- f- thank you very much Roy and it's uh, so kind of you to do this for uh, for Bonnie she was uh, she was one <laughs> one of a kind I'll tell you she made it her mission to uh, to uh, hold the hold the government's feet to the fire with uh, with some of the uh, results or non-results of uh, the hostage taken with uh, John and Bob. And, uh, yeah, and she made it her mission. She was uh, going to do that. And, of course, your listeners didn't know at the time that she was, uh, the entire time she was involved with this, she was suffering, battling uh, stage four cancer. And uh, I, I've had uh, I had the real pleasure last summer uh, Spanny Bonnie uh, she came out we both attended our, our mutual family's 50th reunion, uh, reunion uh, camp out reunion and then she came back and spent a couple of weeks here at our home here in Nanaimo and uh, we, uh, it was just a wonderful experience whether she she never once complained about her illness. Uh, if you didn't know she had cancer you, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't sense it she was always up uh if she did have a severe pain bout she would disappear for a little while and then come back uh, we uh shortly after the memorial robert's memorial uh her family uh siblings and uh, nieces and nephews went over to uh Campbell River and uh north northwest of Campbell River in the forest and uh and placed a cairn there with uh, some personal items of uh, bobs and uh, the families and she wanted to go to drive back up there to see, uh, to just to check on the car and make sure that it hadn't been disturbed. Uh, she, she didn't quite know where it was. She sort of had the idea. But if you can imagine uh, parking a car in a parking lot and then venturing into the forest uh, where every tree looks alike. <laughs> <laughs> and we must have spent a good hour, an hour and a half, looking for this. We, have, we eventually found it. But she was just, she was driven. I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I was about ready to call it quits, and she just kept on <laughs> going. She was the most remarkable person I, I know. Uh, and, and thank you for, uh, for echoing that uh, from your perspective, too. She really well, I have,
0: to a, I have a line here in an email. I, uh, this may have been an email from, from, from you. Uh, it's sort of partially printed. Unfortunately, my printer is not doing all that well, but it partially printed. And it was uh, it states Benice was a true maverick and lived her life based on her convictions, refuting many of the pressures of our dominant society. We have to respect the courage and the strength that that took. And that's that's absolutely so true when I spoke with Benice, and I spoke with her probably uh, just a week or so before she went to Ottawa to meet with the Truder and Christopher Freeland and, uh, and the RCMP officers, senior officers. She was absolutely, she never, she might have said one point, uh, Gordon. she might have said, uh, I'm not feeling that great, but that's as far as she went, as far as her illness was concerned, but she was just so deter- determined that she was going to meet Trudeau, that she was going to meet uh, Christian Freeland, she was going to tell the RCMP what she uh, needed to tell them, and, uh, and, and and she did it.
6: She did. She did indeed, and uh, I spoke with her just before she left, and uh uh, she said that uh, she made a request to meet Trudeau, but it was denied, and I knew <laughs> I knew there was no way she was going to leave Ottawa without meeting with the Prime Minister, and of course she did. And unfortunately, on that trip back from Ottawa, she contracted uh, some kind of a flu bug or something, which she said there were a lot of people coughing and sneezing on the plane, and that uh, really, really spir- spiraled her downward uh, with her disease after that when she got back.
0: So. Mm. She had a... She had a very special relationship with uh, with her brother, with Robert, right?
6: Oh yes, yeah. He called her her his uh, warrior sister. <laughs> so I think throughout her life she uh, she approached things, uh, you know, in a same determined manner. So she really was, and I, and I I think Roy, it's interesting for your listeners to know that because of Bonnie's uh, Bonice's work. And her determination is that it actually did bring about some change. The, the government, uh, no, I don't think they've really done anything since her visit, but the RCMP, to their credit, have uh, made some policy changes uh, for how they will deal with uh, families of hostage victims in the future, and uh, because that was a real sore point with them, and and she's given them credit. She thought that was uh, that was great. They were out to her her home on uh, the Sunshine Coast in BC and met with her for a week, and uh, I think they were very, very eager to reach out and, as I say, make some changes, positive changes for future families. And that's really what she wanted. She wanted uh, to make some changes so that uh, uh, families in future wouldn't have to go through the, the uh, strife that, that her family did.
0: You know, and that was the petition E-696 called for a lot of that. You wanted the inquest into uh, into what happened in the, the Philippines. That's right,
6: exactly. And, and the uh, sort of morphed into something called the Renova Protocol, uh,
0: that was um, the name of uh, Robert's boat. Right? Uh, Robert's
6: boat, yeah, and it uh, it meant. Uh, oh, gee, I'm trying to remember what it meant. It meant. Uh, uh, anyway, um, it it was something to do with you know peace and uh, serenity and that type of thing,
4: mm-hmm. uh,
6: but um, yeah. So uh, petition six ninety six. Didn't really mean much, but the Renova protocol sort of has a uh, quite a a, you know a bit a nice sound to it, and uh, so uh, even the people in uh, well certainly in the RCMP are referring to uh, changes as falling under the Renova protocol. Again, with the government, we've been quite disappointed. I know Bonnie was disappointed with. uh, the fact that uh, they weren't, the government wasn't moving along on uh, some of the things that their uh, family had asked for.
0: Well, if, if, you, if you're looking for someone who is not going to give up, who, someone who's not going to give up an inch of ground, and is just going to make sure that you understand exactly what it is that she wants you to understand, your cousin was that person. She was going to make sure that you understood what her points were, and you know, I there were t- every each time I spoke with her, and I I have to tell you this: each time I spoke with Benice when I when I hung up, and we're talking about on the air or off the air. I think we talked more off the air than on the air. Uh, I I felt energized just by her energy, That's and when strange. you consider that she's battling stage four cancer and she still is able to do that for people and maintain the focus and the drive that she did, uh, the, people like your cousin do not come along very often.
6: No, they don't, and it's. Uh... I guess it's fortunate that our family had somebody like Bernice. Uh It's unfortunate that most families that have run into these kind of situations and uh, where the government has fall fallen down or fallen short, they don't have anybody like Bunis to kind of t- carry the banner, carry the torch, and uh, and uh, affect change like she did. It's uh, but she did it, I think, for all Canadians, not just for her mm-hmm.
0: family. Well, I want to let everybody know that uh, if you wish to donate. In the memory of Bernice and her brother Robert, you can do that at uh, Sunshine Coast Hospice, Sunshine Coast Hospice, and that's coasthospice.com, coasthospice, coasthospice.com, or there's also hostageUS, um, .org, hostageus.org, hostageus.org, because you worked with uh, she worked with them as well.
6: That's right. She did. Yeah.
0: Gord, yeah. thank you, uh, thank you for allowing me to speak with you today on. Uh, about your about your cousin and and our, again our, all of us uh, send our condolences to you and your family on uh, on on her loss. But she has made an impression on each and every person who has had the opportunity to hear her, or fortunately uh, for me, I had the chance to speak with her. You take good care.
6: You too, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for doing this, Roy. All right,
0: Gord. Gord okay. Bibby, yeah. the cousin of uh, Bernice Thomas.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.
0: Doug Morton joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. He's a paralegal former police officer in, uh, in London, Ontario, traffic police officer. Hey, Doug, thank you so much for everything you did for me. Oh, you're welcome, Roy. It's uh, my pleasure. You're a real professional.
4: Well, thank you and 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 thank you for having me on uh, your show today.
0: Yeah. Well, so 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 uh, I covered off uh day appearances one and two. Yes. Uh can you just tell us what happened when when you were called into chambers with the uh, how much of this can you tell us because I know it's top secret stuff?
4: Well, we were called I I filed a motion because the officer had made a mistake on the ticket and he put the location as somebody's home address. Right. I filed a, I filed a motion to have the ch- the ticket thrown out because Uh, you can't lawfully erect a stop sign that's enforceable on somebody's private property Um, so we went to the chambers and the Justice peace basically said that he would rule against us on on the motion without hearing anything and uh, said so but because I know everything you've told me uh, I have to recuse myself from the trial because I now know too much about I'm not uh, I know too much so we had to come back on uh, a week ago Friday.
0: Yeah, and they were ready to offer me a deal the second time, right?
4: They were, They the, the justice was encouraged them, encouraging them to offer you a deal that had zero demerit points but would still show on your driving record, and you'd still have to pay a fine.
0: Yeah, and it would still affect my, my insurance rates. Well, it may, yes. Okay, so, so we went a third time. We went on Friday, and we're doing this, ladies and gentlemen, because... I know there are people right across this country who are facing the same situation I faced when you get the ticket. And you're saying to yourself, should I fight this? And the conventional wisdom from my friends was, don't bother, you can't win. Well, that's not true. So the third time, we went uh, Friday before this past Friday, so about 10 days ago. Walk us through, please, Doug, uh, what what happened.
4: Well, you know, you, you came up, the charges read you, you pled not guilty, and our trial started. Now, in most trials where the police officer is a witness, the, the police officer would like to refer to his or her notes uh, during the testimony for the purposes of refreshing their memory. Now, 99.9% of the time, that's a pretty standard thing that happens. In order for the officer to be able to re- refer to their notes during their testimony, uh, the party calling that witness has a burden to, to, to establish that the notes were made contemporaneously. That's a that's a, a big word. That's a big
0: I avoid that.
4: Yeah, I so do I. I, right. I, I. I I I hurt. I have a headache now. Um, <laughs> Roy, that just means the officer made the notes at the time, or very soon thereafter, right? And that the officer made those notes. The officer uh, kept the notes, and there have been no no deletions, no alterations to the notes.
0: From the time that that he made the notes to the time that he's in that courtroom, correct. Okay.
4: So if if the answer, if there's positive answers to all those, yes, I made them right away. I haven't made any deletions, and and like I said, 99.9% of the time, that's the way it is. So just as the she the prosecutor, called, uh, a very nice lady, for Mrs. rutherford Miss Rutherford, I believe her name, she was uh, she was parachuted in from Niagara. Uh, Sometimes they do that. They're short of prosecutors, so they'll just bring somebody from another area. Mm-hmm. She was a lovely lady to deal with. Um, so she whispers over to me, Are any problem with the officer referring to his notes? And I replied back to her, no, not at all, subject to me comparing the notes. Now, in advance of the trial, Roy, we had, a, we had applied for and received the disclosure. The disclosure, for your listeners, is a prosecution's case against you. Mm-hmm. And basically, in a traffic case, it might be a copy of the ticket and the officer's notes. Well, in Halton, the uh, the police now for traffic violations, they're now doing everything uh, uh, electronically. So I, I, I received three pages of disclosure uh, that were computer-generated, and uh, each page, the two pages, had writing at the top 25% of the page. The rest of the page was blank. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, just as out of due diligence, I say, well, I don't have a problem with the officer using notes, but I just want to check to make sure that the notes he has are the same notes we have. Um, I go up, I approach, I ask the court for permission to approach the officer, I go up to the officer and say, okay, here's my notes. What do you have? Well, I'm the officer has about eight pages of notes. Mm-hmm. And I have... And you know we have two, <laughs> yeah. and and I can see that the, the there's a cover page which is his notification telling him to come to court. So I say, okay, well show me where your notes are. So he shows me his, where where the notes are, and I'm a, I'm about to compare them, uh, and I notice at the bottom, just right below his last sentence, there's a there's a Google map, and the Google map's about the size of a square coaster. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, wait a minute, there's something wrong here, because, Roy, we don't have that. That was not disclosed to us. So while I'm still standing beside the officer, I said, what's that there? And he says, oh, it's, it's a Google map of where this happened. And I said, can you look at my my disclosure? I said, where is it on my disclosure? And he says, oh, well, no, you don't get that. Well... Uh, I think that's when you saw me light my my. I get that kind of a smile.
6: Yeah, yeah
0: I saw the firelight. Yeah, yeah.
4: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the light went on. Right. Um, well, I went back and I. And, uh, hold
0: on, hold on to that thought, there, Doug. Doug yeah. I just need to take a quick break. All right. The, if if you end up in traffic court, if you if you're going to fight a ticket, look, if you, if you're not guilty, if you believe and you strongly believe and you know you're not guilty, then I, my gut tells me fight it. That's your right. So we're at the point now where Mr. Morton has found a discrepancy. Uh, We received two pages, and the officer has a whole bunch of extra pages with a map. That's not the way it's supposed to be.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.
0: Let's get back to the story of uh, how my traffic ticket was withdrawn by the Crown. I have paralegal Doug Morton with me. He was... Kind enough to take on my case, Mr. Morton's going to be in studio later because we have a completely different story. We'll have a young man in here who, in 2016, drove while he was drunk and crossed into oncoming traffic, uh, was involved in a head-on collision, and the person he hit died. And so we have, this the first time ever, that anybody who was on the uh, delivery end driving drunk and killed somebody will actually be talking on the I've never had that happen before where they, somebody would actually say, yeah, I'll come in and I, I feel so such tremendous remorse about what I've done. I want to talk about it. so that'll happen later. Doug, so um, so let's as quickly as we can get through yep. what, what what happened next. So you've got you've got two pieces of paper. The office has got a bunch of extra paper plus a Google map. So yep. what does that say to you?
4: Well, it, it said to me that the, the notes he wants to rely on are altered right and that they were the the editions weren't made con- contemporaneously and that it doesn't pass the test for him to e- be able to uh, use his notes to refresh his memory during his testimony right so i brought that to, uh, i made that pitch to the justice peace the justice the peace then said oh boy this is a big important issue he looked at the prosecutor and said, you have to file a motion. You have to provide case law. You have to serve Mr. Morton. He gets a chance to reply. So we're going to come back on the 23rd of May just to set a timetable for all that to happen.
0: And that now doesn't involve me anymore because no, it's, he... lo- it's looking at the system that they used, right? Yes. Yeah. Because the officer said that he, when he had his notes, he inputted them into his system. He has a password and a key. And supposedly nobody has access to the notes until such time as he withdraws the notes from the system to go to court. And clearly, well, it appears that wasn't the case.
4: Well, he doesn't withdraw them. Somebody else. Somebody else does. Somebody else sends them to him. Okay. Uh, so you know, it was. I'm not going to. I don't. I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, uh, Roy. But there, the the there could have been better explanations to my question.
0: Okay. Well, so
4: anyway, yeah. I wrote to the. Uh, I wrote to the senior prosecutor in halton just to inform her what had happened and uh as I tried to lay it out as neutral as i could i uh, wrote to her on the 30th of april uh to explain to her what had happened and why we're coming back before his worship on the 23rd of may and she reported she wrote back to me saying that she had spoken with miss rutherford and the officer to find out what happened and her, uh, she's saying, looking to the nature of the charge and the history of this case, the charge will be withdrawn.
0: So that, that to me is surprising, given everything that we had gone through to get to this point. Yep. So th- am, I f- am I correct to say that there's a systemic issue here or somebody made a serious mistake? Uh, so it's either one or the other, and I was caught in the middle.
4: You get the advantage of of someone's mistake, yes.
0: Okay. Yeah. But and, at the same time, I, I insist that I was not guilty.
4: Well, you were. Well, right. You are not guilty because they haven't proven you were guilty. Because you're, you're guilty. You're innocent until proven guilty. And right. They could not prove you were guilty. Yeah. So did you? You didn't get your chance to stand on the soapbox and 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 tell the world you you didn't do it.
0: Right. Well, but I, do, I can now.
4: Well, you, you've got your soapbox today,
0: yeah.
4: <laughs> but um, but the the thing is, sometimes Roy in court and Jeff Manishin will tell you this if he ha- if you ever have him on again, or the next time you have him on again, is that sometimes certain things aren't worth the fight mm-hmm. because you may not like the result. Okay, and this may have been one of those situations where all the all the work that the prosecution was going to have to put into this uh, to allow the officer to refer to his notes may not have been worth the result if the ruling went against them.
0: Yeah. Plus, I have the right to a speedy uh, trial, or at least a yeah. fair amount of time. They can't just stretch it out forever. That's and it was correct. coming and up and to and a year anyway. Yeah. You know, it's been a, it, on June 2nd, it'll be a year.
4: That's right. And, that, and that's why, the, you know, the, the, in the email it said, in the history of this case, right? it's gone. You know, you shouldn't have to come to court three times.
0: No, and this was going to be a fourth time.
4: Would have Well, yes. Well, you wouldn't have been there. It would have been me and then you would have to come back another day. But it's it's going to be over with on the 23rd of May when it will be officially withdrawn. But the Crown has indicated in writing that they're going to withdraw the charge.
0: Do I get anything in writing about that?
4: You'll get a letter from me.
0: Okay. Mr. Morton, you're uh, you're a very skilled man. I, uh, I, I asked the first time you were on the air with me, why does somebody need a paralegal? I guess I have my answer.
4: Well, right, because... I, well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I think you have your answer and the listeners have the answer because this was a technical point, Roy, that a lot of people who spent a lot of time in court and even some uh, paralegals and defense lawyers would not have caught this. Yeah. And it was an important issue. Yeah. And, and and the issue worked out in your favor.
0: Doug, thank you so much and we'll see you, when, uh, see you later on when David's here. Thank you. Doug Morton, paralegal, my paralegal and I thank him very much. And I paid him one fee. And even though we went to court three times, the fee stayed the same.
2: The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.